When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. Andrew Hadfield is professor of English at the University of Sussex. Andrew has written widely on topics ranging from class struggle in the Forsyth Chronicles, Hamlet in Poland, and early modern political theory. He's the author of an authoritative biography of Edmund Spencer and the co-editor of Amazons, Savages, and Machiavell's Travel and Colonial Writing in English, 1550 to 1630, an anthology. His new book is Literature and Class, From the Peasants' Revolt to the French Revolution, published through Manchester University Press. I'm excited to welcome Andrew to the podcast. Thank you very much, John. It's very very good to get a chance to talk yet again about class and to kind of outline all my my ideas about it. so thank you very much. Yeah, th- thank you. I'm looking forward to the conversation uh, as well. I'd like to begin by talking about the conception of this book. How did you come to this project? Uh, how did you decide, decide on the scope, the archive, and the topic? Oh, thank you. No, it's an interesting question, which probably requires a bit of a, a discursive answer, I think. I've always been interested in, in politics and class and so on. It's always It's always been something that's interested me from a from an undergraduate onwards, I, 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 I suppose. And I started off working on national identity, colonialism, Irish material at the start of my career. Then I passed into on into other areas. But class was always on my radar from the 1970s and 1970s. And um, it was always, in, the, in that period, it was much more of, a, I think, a, a prevalent topic in literary studies. You did get studies of class. In some ways, what happened subsequently might have been a reaction to that. Uh, one of the things we've both witnessed in our, in our lifetimes has been the sort of, um, not necessarily the collapse, but the kind of lack of dominance of, of uh, intellectual uh, Western Marxism has happened very much in universities, along with the collapse of the Soviet Union and so on. And that's shifted the focus, and the focus has often gone from uh, class, politics, the Cold War, thinking about uh, those sort of issues, to more race and empire. And it's... Um, it, it, and gender politics as well. These, these, this has changed the map of, I think, concerns of um, leftish liberal people in, in, in the universities. So in some ways, this is a return to kind of what I was thinking of a long, long uh, uh, time, time ago. It's quite interesting that when I started off, um, it was my, the start of my career was very much at the intersection of 
old-fashioned literary studies and newfangled uh, literary theory. And one of the movements was, of course, cultural materialism. In the States, you had new historicism. In Britain uh, and, and Europe, you had much more what was called cultural materialism. But a very, very similar kind of movement that wanted to get back to thinking about history, the embeddedness of the text, material culture. But it was supposedly much more class and political focused in, in, in the UK. And one of the Many of the manifestos you got from those critical movements were, we're going to talk much more about race, gender and class. Um, what happened was, I think, was, as people have pointed out, there's much more talk about race and gender because of those factors that I outlined before. And class somehow uh, fell backwards, didn't, didn't, didn't appear in the, in, in, the, in the conversation as much as it, as it, as it might have done. Partly is also the, res the result of the rise of um, identity politics as well, which, which tended to concentrate very much on individual identity. So poor old class became something of a, of, a, of a poor relation because to think about class properly, you have to think about large social movements and you have to, you have to get into uh, wider ideas of, of, um, of, of society and culture, which, isn't, which of course you do have to with... with, with um, race and gender, but you often got an easier way of pinning those onto individual identities. For some reason, it doesn't happen so much with, um, with class identities. So that, if you like, is, um, is, is, is perhaps the, 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 the background to, to why I thought I'd write the book. I, I've been getting very frustrated about people not talking about class and talking about other things which were related and very, and very interesting. Um, the actual genesis of the book, as I say, it was I've been turning it around in my head for a long time. It's gone through various iterations. Um, and one of well, the first iteration was I was going to write a very, very big book about literature and class from 1400 to 1700, which was going to be about 7,000 pages and would go into every single detail of class um, analysis and the differences in class and the way in which class was manifested, it soon became very clear that that would be a pretty boring project. Because one of the problems about writing about, about class over a long period is that you can end up repeating yourself all the time and saying very, very similar things if you're, if you're, if you're not very careful. And uh, that was something I wanted to avoid. So the second iteration of the book that never happened was a very breezy um, you know, Beowulf to the present day, talking about class in a, in about eighty thousand words, which proved uh, impossible, impossible as, as as well because there was just too much material. And class is quite dull if you just if you just come up with individual aspects of um, of, of class politics. You really have to explain why things are manifested within particular narratives and how those narratives work, how they might fit into wider structures. How, how authors might be thinking about about class, um, whether consciously or not. So I ended up I ended up writing the book very very rapidly after thinking about it for a long time in lockdown, uh, and, and and it ended up getting bigger and bigger and being sort of Chaucer up to the the, the kind of romantics really, or as I put it, you know, the peasants' revolt um, to the French Revolution is 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 the period I ended, I ended up covering. So. That's the that's the that's the kind of genesis of the book. So it was relatively swiftly written, but I've been thinking about writing it for twenty or thirty years, really. Um, and I suppose the last thing I'd I'd, um, I'd want to say is I then I then hunted around for the structure, and I found that the structure I was most happy with was to give an overview 
of the history of, of particular class politics in a, in a longish opening chapter. And then to go through a series of, of, of historical examples, I found that the most the most satisfying way of doing it, so of, of squaring that circle, as opposed to history and literature embedded within each chapter. Um, I found that was was quite difficult to write when I was having to, to link things too carefully to events. So that's really how it, how it sort of um, how how it kind of ended up being like it is really. Well, now I feel a little bereft that we didn't get Beowulf in class. That that chapter, alas, you know, life is too short. I guess I have to go backwards now. Yeah. <laughs> um, as you invite us to to think about class in this book, it is an identification that might reach across geography, job, identity, and ethnic difference. Still, it powerfully inflects our relationship to language and our personal relationships and physical environments. You. Explore this in an opening comparative reading of Iris Murdoch's The Sea, The Sea, and E.M. Forrester's Howard's End. Um, can, can you uh, talk us through that, that comparison? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to show in the book was the ways in which thinking about, about class, the differences about, about, about class, status, rank, hierarchy, however you really want to think about them, uh, in fact, determine... Uh, create all sorts of relationships from the very trivial to 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 the kind of life-changing and that was why I wanted to use those two those two books I mean I think they're both really fascinating books the sea the sea tells the story of um, uh, uh, a theater manager um, Charles Arroway Araby who 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 um goes back to his sort of um, the place he spent his youth and meets um, his his uh, childhood sweetheart uh, they've taken very different paths in life and he's gone he's become very successful and she's she's been rather less so and is perhaps rather less happy he then has this fantasy about um saving her from her kind of what he sees as her miserable marriage uh, and and that he can kind of take her away from all this it becomes obvious this is a fantasy that the novel's very much about how you can't return to that that past it's a foreign country but there's a very very I think quite touching and quite funny scene where they have a tea party and Charles um, behaves very, very snobbishly as he's passed cucumber sandwiches and, and uh, you know, uh, references are made. Sort of, does he want the milk in the teacup first and so on? Um, for him, uh, tea, the, this, this meal is, is, is a social faux pas. It's a terrible embarrassment. People of his class don't bother with... Um, something like a tea party what what is interesting is the fact that the tea party of course has a particular history but it came in as a meal i think in the uh, uh, i've got a section on it but i think it's in the 19th century where where it where it was adopted as a meal by the upper classes who tended to eat very late so they they often had uh, a, a meal where you'd have some sandwiches or some cakes and some tea before you got stuck into your half a boar or whatever it was you were having that that, that, that evening. It then became a, repeated as a sort of luxury uh, status symbol meal that, that, that people of lower social status could enjoy. Uh, and often it was something that people did on holidays, on trips to the seaside, they go for, they go for tea. So um, Hartley, uh, the, the, you know, Charles's childhood sweetheart, thinks she is doing something very, very nice in giving him this kind of 
a formal tea party in her house, whereas he's embarrassed. And it's a very good scene. It brings together all sorts of class anxieties, class embarrassment. Everybody is totally embarrassed at this. No one is at their ease. And it's supposed to be a nice thing. Uh, and it's a, it's a kind of, um, you know, Iris Murdoch does it particularly well, but you find quite a lot of examples of this in in, in television programs, films, uh, novels, and so on. But it's it's a it's a good example of that kind of uh, cross class confusion that doesn't work, and partly because Charles is shown to be historically ignorant as well, and very very ill mannered in the way that in the way that he he, he treats Hartley. Uh, manners are sometimes seen as a series of rules and etiquette. Uh, markers, but actually they're often really about making people feel at their ease. If he was a nicer person, he'd have made Hartley feel that she was really treating him in this in this way. So that's a good that's a good example of the sort of minor but actually really resonant uh, problems of, of of class. The example in Howard's End is much uh, much more serious, and I think I think I think Ian Forster is very good on 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 class relations, and this is where. The very wealthy Schlegel family, who are kind of well-meaning, very well-heeled in London, um, take up Leonard Bast, who is a, who is someone hovering around the sort of upper working class, lower middle class rank. Um, is a is a is a is a clerk in an insurance company. He, uh, he, they manage to give him terrible advice, so he loses his job. All sorts of problems. But the thing that's very moving is he's doing evening classes and he's reading Ruskin on Venice. And he's desperately trying to make himself more cultivated, partly to impress the the, um, the Schlegels, who are very very cultured, uh, and they're quite careless with their with the and they find uh, cultural literary references very very easy. He struggles trying to read um, Ruskin on Venice, and and really can't make head nor tail of it, and gets more and more angry and upset. And one of the questions that the book asks you is. Um, what about those narratives of aspiration of class being something that you can get over through through your kind of hard work, through becoming cultured? The idea that culture um, is 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 a is a unifying force. Here we see it in this novel as something that divides people. That that Leonard Bast is just not quite uh, clever enough, or sophisticated enough, or doesn't have the right sort of mentality to be able to use this education to move on and it's really about that that problem of people not seeing that their that their ways of imagining society their ways of imagining things that outside class structures are very very deeply riven by 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 class anxieties and class and class structures and and that Leonard Bass becomes a terrible victim of of of, uh, of of these kind of issues. So the book the book is very good, and I wanted those kind of anecdotes to hover over the the um the book, saying these are these are kind of two not necessarily mo- of the most memorable moments in in literature, but they just appear time and time again. Everybody in 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 literary history is thinking about class and I tried to use examples from very well-known writers like Chaucer and Alexander Pope and rather less well-known writers like uh, Stephen Duck uh, thinking about just how all of those uh, writers one of the central concerns of their writing whether whether conscious or not is is class and class anxiety. Yeah there's that example from Howard's End of uh, Leonard Bast is um, 
basically writing purple prose, right? That's, that's influenced by his reading of Ruskin. Um, his he, he isn't quite able to um, acquire that cultural capital that he's so desperate to attain, which which leads me to um, my next question, which is this book has an interesting conceptual knot at its core, the, the relationship between literature and class. What might literature have to teach us about class? And uh, that say a history of economics or a sociological survey might miss. I'm not. I mean, one of the things I'm not trying to do in the book is claim that literature is the particular repository of class. I mean, I, uh, you could have written a history of clothing, material culture, film, art, and so on and, and so forth. I suppose my point is that all kind of cultural products, all kinds of uh, societal uh, things are fractured by by um, or bear the mark of class relations in all in all in all sorts of different ways which is not to say that's the only thing you can ever say about them sometimes people think that uh, there's an anxiety about writing about class where where people think that's all you want to write about and that that everything can be reduced to that and I'm really not trying to say that I'm just trying to say this the history of English literature doesn't look right if we don't if we don't sort of um, put class back on the agenda and start to think about class. And I was very conscious about not trying to. It's not a it's not a book that's just about working class um, because so much literature on class is 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 particularly about the working class and rightly so. But this is a book really about how you change class. What are the anxieties about belonging to different socioeconomic strata? How do we think about class? Does it change over time? Because everybody is always thinking about uh, those those kind of material questions in their in their in their writing. But I suppose what it tells us is um, literature is literature is both the product of of class relations and it represents class relations. Um, so there's that there's that kind of way in which it's 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 both the representer of things and it's and and represents them as well. Um, sorry, it's representative of things and it represents them as well. It's very much like the the um, uh, ways in which people have used literary examples is one of the things I wanted to point out in in, in the book. Uh, you know, Karl Marx famously talked about history being first as tragedy, then as farce. In the 18th, Brumaire of Louis Napoleon reaches for the literary, the literary example because that's often how people access and understand the world. They they reach straight away for literary examples as great thinkers like like Marx and Freud did. They they went for these things. So, it's it's really just trying. The book really doesn't have. Um, uh, a very, very over-determined argument. It's really about, look, literature is, is, is a product of class relations and it represents class relations and that's something we need to bring much more into the conversation. Uh, it's not trying to say these are the only examples that you can have, or this is the only way of reading it. It's, it's, it's really just coming up with that, with that kind of formula, I suppose. It, it also strikes me, having uh, read your book, um, that uh, literature also gives us that that access to the lived-in experience of class, like like your example um, from the sea, the sea, um, the temperature of the tea, you know, the way it um, is experienced by individual people is inflected with these class dynamics uh, and the anguish of the uncertainty of knowing 
you know, should I put in the milk first or last, you know, that, that is harder to access in a, a kind of purely um, quantitative analysis, right? I won't go on and on about tea, um, but that, that tea is a very, it's, I mean, all sorts of products tell fantastic histories. Obviously, there's a colonial history to tea. But one of the great anxieties about tea is um, if, if you were upper class, you tended to make show off your cups by putting in the boiling tea first because it was showing that you had the top quality china. If you had to put the milk in first, that was often a sign that you didn't have the, the, the top of the range cups because they couldn't stand the heat of the, of the, of the uncooled uh, tea. So tea itself, tea, which, you know, I'm sure, you know, in the 18th century, people had very elaborate locked tea chests. It was a very valuable commodity. Gradually, it became cheap and everyone had it. But it's 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 history is it is bound up with both imperial and class and class history and class anxiety and so on and so forth. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. Um, on the one hand, literature might help us think through class, understand, interrogate, offer alternatives to the class system. Uh, on the other hand, literature has traditionally been a pillar in class formation. Uh, class shapes what we read as much as how we read, right? Yes, yes, in, in, uh, indeed. That's obviously the canon of literature has been very much uh, something that's often, as people pointed out, uh, has a particular class f- formation um, or is influenced by, by, by class. Um, often said, the first really, really important canonical wor- uh, working class writer is D.H. Lawrence. It takes quite a long time before you get, you get somebody who gets enshrined in that way and then almost fetishized in the canon because of his working classness. And there's obviously been a massive reaction against Lawrence, who is now coming back, I suppose. Uh, so that's, that's, that's quite an interesting, an interesting story. But you go back through the history of most, even just skimming the surface, going through most of the, uh, the popular, famous, canonical authors. Um, Chaucer, who I talk about, or write about quite a lot in the first, in the first uh, chapter. Well, the Miller uh, in, the, in the Reeves tale is, is represented as uh, somebody whose family is incredibly dysfunctional. The... Um, it's clear that he's not only that his wife has been passed off on him and she hasn't really wanted to marry him, but there's also the illegitimate child. The child is an un- uncertain parentage, uh, and the cradle, of course, forms forms a, a, an important prop in the in the room. But the um, the suggestion is that she's probably the child is probably the the granddaughter, suggesting that the that the daughter is also somebody who's going to have to be married off soon, and she's of course the one who sleeps with with one of the students. If you remember that, remember the plot, and two women are represented as happy-go-lucky, promiscuous women who are kind of very very unsatisfied with their with their drunken father. But Chaucer represents um, a picture of a dysfunctional, corrupt family. Who, who are aspirational but are kind of being moved down the social scale rather than being able to move up it in the way that they would want. And they're outwitted by the clever university students who are going to go, go further than them. And in some ways it's a reverse of what happens in the Miller's Tale where, where um, the, the kind of um, aspirational uh, young man is, is, is outwitted by, by the student and the, the, um, uh, the wife. So Chaucer is endlessly telling these class tales of where the, the Reeve and the Miller, both people of um, 
substantial but kind of uncertain status tell stories against each other jockeying for 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 particular power and precedence within within English society at the time um, that would just be that would just be one of one of the the, the many examples you get about about um, literature and class in, in in terms of this of, of thinking about it and representing it and being produced by class anxieties. The Foresight Saga, which I've written on as well, which will appear when I eventually get around to writing volume two of this, uh, is, is, is a really fascinating novel about class, which is um, is written from the position of somebody within the upper middle class. That's John Galsworthy, who was painfully aware of his kind of privilege and his class status, and also excoriates the material values of his of his own class i think it's i think the foresight saga is the only kind of really really famous novel that i know of that actually mentions class in the first sentence which is really fascinating um but that that's that's a novel again that that um it's brilliant on um galsworthy's attack on 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 the material greed of the upper middle classes when he tries to write a much wider social critique of england it, uh, the novel kind of the novel sequence starts to come apart at the scenes but it's another it's another example just like chaucer is of of, of, of a work that is, is is the product of a class system and thinks about that class system and then has an influence on how people think about that class system what was the peasants revolt and what was the peasants' revolt after, uh, revolts afterlife in literature? Peasants' revolt is a watershed moment. It's thirteen eighty one, um, and the, 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 it was the the peasants revolting against what they saw as excessive taxation. Um, and it's a really, really interesting, really dangerous revolt that happens, as many revolts actually do, in times of affluence for the, for the, for the peasants. It's not a time of dearth when they decide to revolt. It's a time when they're in demand because the Black Death in the middle of the 14th century has decimated the countryside. Peasants, uh, workers on farms are, are particularly in demand at this point. And... Um, they can push for higher wages, and so they do. Uh, it leads to this amazing revolt in, 30, in 1381 where they, where they feel they're being uh, misused, appropriated, and finally it's time to, to answer back. And all these peasants from Essex, or they're not all peasants, that's the thing. They're, they're, many of them are urban town workers, many of them do different jobs. But what's interesting about the revolt is that the peasant description is what unites them together in part through hostility in part through their own valuation of their work but anyway there's peasant people peasants from east anglia kent essex the home counties converge on london under the leadership of Wat tyler and confront the king they loot the um the tower of london uh, finally there's this uh, there's this big meeting where the Richard II, who, if you read Shakespeare, is often represented as a weak and cowardly king. As a young man, he was rather more bold than he's often represented. He agrees to speak to what Tyler. Uh, Tyler greets him as brother, you know, uh, something that's incredibly insulting. And um, and the um, in an ensuing melee, he's uh, stabbed by the Lord Mayor of London and dies, and the, and the peasants eventually are dispersed. But there's a series of other revolts afterwards. There's lots of aftershocks. There's further kind of unrest in the later 14th, 15th centuries. It's a time that 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 kind of 
medieval historians have no problem in talking about class conflict. And it's partly, it's, it's a good example of class not being just socially determined, but also imagined, constructed, thought about, because it's very much an us v them situation where the tillers of the land confront the people who benefit from it as, as it's seen. Obviously, the historical reality is more complicated than that. But it sheds a kind of uh, light over what happens subsequently, particularly in the 17th century with the with the English Civil War, English Revolution. Um, look, many people look back to the to the to the peasants' revolt as a time of the the people who tilled the land asserted their own kind of ownership of it against the people who were exploiting them, and it becomes very important in how people think about. Um, ownership, common land, who who owns what, who has the right to the land, whose whose country is it really? Um, and 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 it's it's yeah, it's it's a, it's an event that is very very threatening for the uh, for the for the kind of ruling class. It's also one that resonates as a as a, as a symbolic event of class conflict, really. In your book, you examine one of my favorite poems, the uh, Pierce Plowman, a, a long dream poem. Uh, the poem's images and satirical rhetoric uh, were taken up by uh, members of the Peasants' Revolt uh, in the 1380s. Well, what does Piers Plowman have to say about class? Uh, you're quite right to to choose this as one of your favourite poems. It should be uh, one of everybody's favourite poems. It's an amazing piece of, uh, of, of literature. Uh, like many of the works that I've, I look at in the book, it, 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 it's both conservative and radical in some ways. Um, that's where I think Piers, Piers Plowman can be situated without going into actual specific detail. It's endlessly rewritten. It's an incredibly powerful poem. Um, in some ways, I say it's a conservative work. It, it, it kind of has this very backward-looking vision in some ways of the society being based on the three basic uh, estates, the church, the peasants and the knights. Uh, obviously, everyone knows that that's a sort of reductive model of, of society, but it's used quite a lot. Uh, Piers, and, and Piers the Plowman is looking to get back to that, and it starts off where there's, a, there's an attempt to um, reform society through, through social revolution, and that fails completely. So then everybody decides that they're going to reform society through the individual having to be reformed first. So it asks that classic question about, is it individuals or institutions that really, uh, or larger social groups that really, that really are the motor engine of history and morality? But in concentrating on the, on the actual figure of, the, of Christ as Piers the plowman, the, the basic plowman who tills the, the soil, it clearly has a radical message about needing to get away from the greed of the upper classes, the pointless wealth, the pointless display that the poem endlessly attacks in its very kind of puritanical way of getting back to an Englishness that is not um, concerned with, with, with greed and wealth. Um, but, it, but in concentrating on that figure of the ploughman, it has definitely a radical edge. And interestingly, one of the, one of the cries taken up in the Peasants' Revolt was Piers the Plowman. Uh, there, are, there are lots of lots of literary fictional figures associated with that peasant's revolt. Piers the Plowman is one of them. It's in um, Rodney uh, Hilton's fantastic book, Bond Men Made Free, is the uh, book written, I think, in the 1960s, which is, which is a wonderful book about, about the kind of politics of the 
of the Peasants' Revolt, but that's where I came across that particular detail. Uh, it's still a book that has that has resonances today. But that yeah, that that that's really how 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 Piers Plowman fits in. Really. You also compare the prefatory matter for uh, Shakespeare's first folio with that of a near contemporary John Taylor, known sometimes as the water poet. Uh, how do these texts uh, alert us to uh, how Shakespeare, a Glover's son, uh, how, did, how he attained social ease among those with titles and court connections by the time the folio was published, and how Taylor, a river worker, never really shook that uncertainty of belonging you know they are they form a really fascinating uh kind of connection i mean the one thing i perhaps maybe move sideways from from what you said is i i'm not sure how much time shakespeare really spent with the with the good and the great or how much he was at ease with them like many of that amorphous category called the middling sort i suspect he was at happiest with merchants, you know, important town dignitaries, theatre workers, money lenders, those are the kind of printers, publishers. Those are probably the people he mixed with as well as other authors. I I don't know if he actually sort of went round to the Earl of Southampton's for tea all the time. You often get you often get these um, depictions of Shakespeare as though he moved seamlessly between these worlds. But um I, you, you never. It's generally one-sided. The the representation. People produce these books. They have these dedications to powerful patrons. You very rarely get the, a letter from the patron saying, "Oh, Shakespeare was uh, round round here again. What a jolly, amusing fellow he is." Because that stuff just doesn't survive. So you've only got the kind of public profession of, of loyalty, often um, a plea for for support and money, or to make sure the book gets some kind of attention. Um, so Shakespeare, I think, is very aspirational, uh, middle middle upper class. People have argued about his particular wealth. He's clearly quite a canny businessman in lots of ways. He ends up accumulating pretty big houses in in um, in Stratford. Um, one of the problems with the survival of records is you often get legal documents and house estate stuff, but you don't get personal letters. So. You can easily skew the record to say, "Oh, Shakespeare's obviously a greedy bloke," but that's partly because he's 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 probably quite canny. He probably has to be in 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 in, in certain ways, uh, but he does acquire property, and if you acquire property, you invariably leave records in the in uh, in in the in the legal documents, and you and you and you get into disputes with your neighbours when people argue about who owns which field and what and what have you, because most wealth. Uh, actually now as then is is very much connected to the land really um, that's how you make your fortune you make bigger fortunes through acquiring property than you do in getting a big salary really uh, uh, so so that's that's kind of Shakespeare he's kind of aspirational does very well for himself makes himself very comfortable John Taylor who writes um, who 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 in some ways is a much more troubled and conservative figure than, than than Shakespeare, but he's from a much lower status. He's got real anxieties about his lack of education, which he's always telling you about in his poetry, that he hasn't got the university education, he doesn't know rhetoric and Latin like like uh, other other people. Shakespeare himself is, is treated with a certain snobbishness because he doesn't go to university. But um, 
John Taylor is more is is more extreme. What's interesting is the way that the preface to Taylor's collected works that he publishes in his lifetime bears a certain resemblance to to the, to Shakespeare's. They both have dedications to um, Lord Herbert, um, who who was sometime uh, uh, in charge of drama. Uh, Shakespeare's dedication, which is actually posthumous, but written by the actors uh, John Hemmings and Henry Cordell, Condell, sorry, um, is, 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 is obviously deferential by people who know the game. Taylor's it gets it totally wrong, I think, in ways where he says, let me tell you all about your fabulous self, your worship, in these poems that I've written to describe you, which seems to me to be very rude and clunky and showing that he doesn't know the game. And he's one of those, he is one of those people who spends half his time worshipping the, the and, and looking up to the people above him and half the time kind of resenting them for not giving him as much patronage and a uh, share of the cake as, as as he might do. So the two form a very interesting um, connection about class and patronage in, in in comparing and contrasting the two in their aspirational status. I think you know, Taylor does co- quite well for himself. He apparently later on owns a, a pub called uh, the Poet or something, which has an inn sign with his own face on it, which is quite funny. Um, but Shakespeare is obviously much more at ease, um, fits much more seamlessly into that world, even if, as I suspect, he spent more time with, with people of the middling sort than of the upper sort, really. They're, they're good examples of class and patronage and aspiration and, and how differently they come out, really, in different people. Yeah, thank you for that. that that's a wonderfully uh, like subtle reading of the rhetorical complexity of the, of um, expressions of, of um, class aspiration. Um, Gerard Winstanley uh, is one of is is another favorite of mine, a, a early modern prose writer. Um, he, he writes during the English Civil War and connected class struggle in his time to a vaster, almost millennia long struggle and. In his afterlife, he's been adopted by uh, working class activists uh, in the 20th century. Um, who was Win Stanley and how do you his writings fit into this history of class? Again, I think you're absolutely right to select Win Stanley as a, as, a, as a particularly powerful writer. He's another he's another favorite of mine. So we share, obviously, similar tastes and interests. Um I love Win Stanley. Uh, he's he's an absolutely fascinating figure. He leaves lives leave, he lives from sixteen oh nine to seventy six. He was a member of the Merchant Taylor class. Not that much is known about his life. And then he became very much a radical in the Civil Wars, and the group that he founded were called the True Levelers. Now the Levelers were um, a group of sort of radical Democrats in the in the English Civil War, largely emerging out of the New Model Army of Cromwell. They want um, d- democracy to be much fairer, much better um, promoted throughout throughout England. That uh, you should have annual parliaments. That uh, everybody should be elected all the time. That people should um, have their re- representatives answerable to them properly, not the current system. When Stanley takes that a stage further in the 1640s, and he says, well, "Okay, well, the levellers—that's fine. We're the true levellers, or the diggers." Um, which is what I think their opponents called them. It's no good having just political rights if you don't have economic rights. I mean, what good is having a load of votes if you haven't got any kind of nice turnips to eat or something? So 
the 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 true diggers or the or the um sorry the diggers or the true levelers go to St George's Hill in Surrey which by the way is now one of the most expensive um areas in England with the most exclusive golf club and uh, properties that cost several zillion quid um so the level so the, the diggers didn't succeed as well as they might have done i suppose in radicalizing it but there's still time of course, um, they took over lands there and decided to, to set up a commune where they would have um, people digging uh, the land themselves. It's going back to that ploughman tradition, providing their own food uh, and, and living as a self-sufficient community. Uh, people are slightly horrified. I mean, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's definite conflict between the, the diggers and local and local landowners and so on. Uh, the diggers are apparently, according to all the accounts I've read, not actually that good at growing their own food. They're terribly good at um, political argument, but but actually the experiment peters out uh, pretty quickly. But the, the the great surviving thing are all the writings left by Win Stanley, which are extraordinary, uh, extraordinary pieces of, uh, of of rhetoric. They're very rooted in religion. The idea that everybody is equal in the eyes of God, that's where so much of the radical political discourse of the English Civil War comes from. The sense that we're all equal, we should all share the same things. They place great emphasis on common land, uh, that everybody should have access to, to land which should be shared. And the thing that they are really against is enclosure, the idea that the rich are becoming richer, that they're enclosing land that used to belong to the people particularly to have vast um, herds of sheep to increase their wealth, as opposed to having common land where people could have a, uh, a bit of an area where they might have a pig or they might, have, they might grow some root vegetables and make their lives a lot better. So those are, those, those are the kind of things that Win Stanley talks about, fulminates about. One of his most interesting beliefs is the idea that mo- uh, about money. But money is largely the root of, of, of evil for Winstanley. For two, well, for three reasons. First of all, it's condemned in the Bible, as he sees it, the idea that money is something that, 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 that is a bad thing. And it enables individuals to accumulate vast amounts of wealth rather than um, wealth being something that's shared for all. So that, that, that's a powerful thing that goes throughout all of Win Stanley's writings that you 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 know you produce stuff you barter you work together you don't want money because it, it kind of it, it it makes you a subject as well that's the thing money has the king's head stamped on it it's a sign of class oppression in itself because you you've created something that that uh, benefits people who can accumulate wealth and you put the king's head on it to, to make people not equal. If you believe everybody is equal, according to Winstanley, you can't have things like money because that's already a sign of inequality. So there's a very backward-looking way that Winstanley goes, um, which I think is absolutely fascinating. So on one hand, he's this radical thinker who wants to dismantle the whole of society. On the other hand, he's very, very conservative. He wants to go back to what you might think of as a primitive communism where everybody bartered, shared things. Um, he doesn't want to move forward to, to, to kind of produce vast amounts of wealth. He just wants to kind of go backwards so that everybody can be equal, really. Um, so again, like, like as I was talking with Piers Plowman, with so many other uh, things in the book, he's, he's somebody who's simultaneously radical and conservative. 
Um, it's quite interesting. There's a bit in the book and uh, some stuff I've done subsequently about some of the royalist writers after the Civil War actually often sound quite like Winstanley. They say, look, we fought this terrible war. Uh, you know, the English Civil War is a horrible, horrible conflict. It has, I think, casualties on the battlefield that are approximately like the First World War. It decimates large parts of the country. Loads of people die. And you get a lot of royalists going, how do we... How do we get here? How do we how do we allow this conflict to break out? Um, and they start to blame their own side. You know, the, many royalists after the Civil War are quite critical of the behaviour of their leaders, um, and many of them want to go back to a much simpler way of life, to retreat into the countryside, to to kind of grow food, to have well-run estates. All like Isaac Walton in a very uh, wonderful book, the, the Complete Angler. He has the idea of the brothers of the angle that all these people will go fishing. They'll be together. There'll be there'll be a lack of hierarchy. They'll, they'll they'll all speak to each other as equals. It sounds very like a lot of what you get in Win Stanley, but they're from the completely the other side of the of the um, political divide. Um, so yeah, Win Win Stanley is a great figure. He's a really really powerful writer. Um, once you've read him, you do start to think, well, I'll throw all my money away. I stopped. I stopped doing that after a few minutes. But I was. I was. I was kind of pretty, pretty persuaded. But he's. He's. He's a great writer. And, and he introduces this prose style, right? That is is so much more direct and conversational. And and in your discussion, I'm also thinking um, something you talk about in the book is um, he tracks it back to the Norman invasion mm-hmm. and, and the kind of the financialization of the English. Economy and, and enclosure of common lands is being kind of imposed from the outside, right? I mean, that's perhaps there's a certain downside to that, which is there's a very much England for the English, the common people till the land. It was everything was great until these French people came along and you know made us eat snails and frogs, frogs' legs, and oppressed everyone and kind of beat the peasants up and took their land away. Which is a it's called the Norman yoke. The idea was that there was an independent Saxon kingdom. Then in 1066, William the Conqueror comes in and sort of transforms the country into basically a vassal state. Uh, it's there's a certain truth. It's also a kind of rather partial ver- ver- version version of history, of course. And the nastier side of this is that there is a, there is a certain xenophobia that goes with a lot of these a lot of these writings, because the king uh, was was married to uh, you know a French queen, and there's also a very anti-French Catholic sort of side side to this, and getting back to proper English religion and stuff, you know. Um, but yeah, that, that that that's right. That 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 idea of the Norman yoke is is very powerful in this period. You also look at uh, Daniel Defoe's novel, uh, Maul Flanders, an absolutely bizarre novel uh, that has a plot that stages a kind of reform for the title character, um, bringing a Maul to a North American colony. Uh, the contemporary events that shape Defoe's thinking about class, um, which, which I learned from your book, um, rely on anachronism. Um, he, he's sort of referring to um, events that would happen after the time frame of the novel, right? Uh, transatlantic dimension change uh, how class in England works. Like Defoe is Defoe is really, really uh, another another really fascinating figure. He doesn't start writing novels until his late 50s. 
um, he's obviously a man of tremendous energy. You know, people don't necessarily live that long in that period. Defoe starts writing in his late 50s. He's been a tradesman, spy, journalist, and he's always been trying to make money. He's, he's one of those people who turns his hand to loads of things. Some things succeed, some things don't succeed. He goes on a tour. He's, he's, he's very invested in Anglo-Scottish unity and gets himself involved in that as a spy. And he's a tour through the whole island of Great Britain. It's another book I talk about, which is, which is one of the great surveys of Britain in that period. That's also partly a propaganda exercise trying to show that England and Scotland are better together, you know. Uh, so that's that, that that's the background to him. That he's always, I think, got his eye on on how to how to make money, how to look after himself. So he's a very good weather vane, I think. You know, he's 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 very good. It's very good at reading him to get a sense of what people what he thought people wanted to read. Um, uh, and I think the other thing is you can never, ever be sure with Defoe how moral he is, whether, whether in the end his, his, his novels tell some kind of moral story or not. Mont Flanders is beautifully poised. In some ways, it, it's a novel that shows you crime doesn't pay. On the other hand, it's a novel that shows you that crime really does pay. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's fascinating like that, where... where um, there's morality all the time, but sometimes morality doesn't seem to serve you that well, and actually, actually behaving quite badly is 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 the way to get on. And uh, very much when in Rome, behave as the Romans is 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 the way the novel seems to do, which is exactly what how Defoe seems to have lived lived his life. Um, the colonies. It's quite interesting that he he's one of the first writers who kind of really branches out and uh, does a lot with with the colonies. And the colonies are very much a, a backdrop where all the all the kind of structures that exist at home disappear. So there's there's wonderful discussions where it's very clear that in in the American colonies you simply don't have to um, your past doesn't matter. There's all these people who've been transported there, some rich, some poor, but they all kind of do well out of the colonies because it's a it's an area where aspirations are there. You can you can kind of um, change yourself, reinvent yourself, which is what Mole is very good at doing, exactly like Defoe. Um, and, and, and in the end, if you, if you kind of don't let yourself be constrained by things that you think are important, which no longer are, you can, you can kind of um, accumulate vast fortunes, have an adventurous life, do all sorts, do all sorts of things. But you know, you're never sure whether Defoe is really sort of telling the story that he thinks his readers want to hear or manipulating his readers and sort of trying to move them in interesting directions, which is why I think he's always meant to be this very, very ambiguous kind of writer um, that, that, that um, you can't ever really get to the heart of where he's going. Um, it's like with, with, with Robinson Crusoe, which I don't, which I don't discuss. It's never, it's never clear in that what exactly what the moral purpose of that story is uh, uh, about how you, reinvent yourself and how you kind of think about your life in terms of bookkeeping but I think the thing about the colonies is quite an interesting one and if there's one there's one thing I want to do in the second volume is have a lot more about uh, the relationship between class empire colony I if I were to criticize this book I would say I probably should have done a bit more in terms of the 18th century there is some something about colonial expansion the empire racism uh, but I 
probably, if I were to have my time again and go back, I might actually develop that and a few a few extra pages or or or, or, or something. But but Defoe, yeah, Defoe is is, is interesting on the call. Is he's totally uninterested in um, sort of the impact of colonial expansion on natives. It's really about how the colonies are just places where you can make giant fortunes. Really, uh, there, there, there's not. He's always. I, he's never going to be someone who's terribly sensitive about race. I suppose that's not something he really. He that's not at the heart of where he's thinking. I think. I'd also like to ask you about the writing process. Um, what are your aims as an academic writer um, in terms of um, constructing arguments or, or putting material together? Um, do you have uh, a writing group that you share your work with or um, certain trusted readers that, that you send material to? It's a, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, I think it's probably changed quite a lot over the, over, over the years. Um, I mean, I think I do tend to write reasonably rapidly but it's often I often spend a long time thinking about projects before I get to them and I read around them and I I like to get into them at a certain point so I found that I I found that's the best way that I in some ways you start thinking about one project while you're writing a what one uh, already um, but I suppose I kind of I used to hate writing when I was a, when I was a PhD student I used to try and write in blocks and I'd get really miserable because I was really fascinated by reading lots and lots of stuff but I found I found writing was like pulling teeth really I, and I kind of forced myself to to do it and gradually built it into to my life because the mantra was if you don't write you can't have the job you want so you're just going to have to you know get on with it really and I did find I did find that was quite useful and in the end I did I did, I did actually start to find writing more neutral and then actually I started to like it and find it um, indispensable really um, so I try to write pretty often. I find that I find that's that's quite helpful. I do get slightly irritable if I don't write. If I haven't written for a long time, I sort of feel slight. I get slightly edgy. I think I, I just find it's important to keep to keep going. My my I think in some ways I'm a bit of a, a, a of a dinosaur. That my my fantasy kind of academic book writing. Uh, I think it's more difficult to do this than it was some time ago because I remember when I was a fir- when I was first uh, a student or a postgraduate student, you would get um, works that everyone was supposed to read. You'd have these subject-wide books or beyond the subject. I'm thinking of things like Northrop Fry's Anatomy of Criticism or I remember when Terry Eagleton's Literary Theory came out, the local bookshop at my university had hundreds of copies piled high and I got one and struggled through it dutifully. You had those things that felt like real events. I don't think you get so much of that now, but I, I suppose my aspiration has always been to write something that, that kind of goes beyond um, the the kind of immediate context. I've always, I suppose I've always aspired to write Renaissance self-fashioning, <laughs> which I can... I, I picked up that sometime after it came out, but that was a book that you just had to read, and it was and it, and it bonded together as a, a whole subject, and then people got really fed up with it because it was over um, influential and so on. But it was a book that defined 
an era and a subject. And I suppose I've always wanted to kind of do stuff like that. And to do that, you have to have a, a prose style that reaches just beyond your immediate um, group. And I think I started off trying to write in quite theoretical ways. Um, when I look at some of my efforts to do this, they really aren't terribly impressive. And I, I, I write in convoluted ways that um, even I struggle to understand. And there's lots of brackets and subclauses and stuff. I eventually found, you, you, you know, you develop a style. And I think, I think I try to deal with important, you know, I don't always deal with them well, but I try to deal with, with subjects that I think do go beyond the immediate that have that have that let people in so if you read a book on if you read my book on class you might like it you might not like it you don't have it, it it's supposed to give you ways of thinking about things that might be different from the stuff that i discuss here it might it might it might set up connections for you but i've always wanted to write those books that um you read it and you think oh that's like my work i can think of my work in these terms i can start doing that and i that's always been my kind of um, aspiration. I suppose in the, as in the other thing I'd say is I, I, I've always thought literature, English literature, is a great subject. It's it's and what I like about it is its kind of mongrel nature. That it's it's a you know the Walter Benjamin. There's no document of civilization that's not also a document of barbarism. And I think in some ways with um, the advent of social media, we've kind of lost that a bit, where where people sort of seem to be trying to catch out great authors for, for saying all sorts of terrible things. And then you get great defences of them as though they were perfect people. And it seems to be such a misconceived debate that the question is not, did people sometimes get pe things wrong, but which things did they get right, which did they get wrong? How do these people with giant imaginations work? How can you put them in conversation? How can you illuminate them? How can you inspire people to go and read these people and think their own thoughts? and have conversations with them. That's what I've always hoped I'd be able, I'd, I'd be able to do, rather than writing books that um, say this person's right, this person's not right. But more, how, how do we deal with these giant debates, really? I mean, I uh, to circle back to what you were saying. Yeah, I, I also feel a sense of loss that um, those or uh, with this paradigm shift that. I can go to a conference like the Shakespeare Association of America or, or something, and everyone is excited about recent books, but it's very rare that the, the Venn diagram has a very large sort of convergence of interest. You know, we're all kind of excited about different books in widely different fields. Um, there's few books that everyone is reading, everyone is, is engaging with, you know, at the same moment. Um, yeah, that, that, that does seem like a dramatic difference. It, it, can I also go back to the first thing you said, which was that um, initial uh, unease with writing? Did it have to do with the kind of narrowing of possibilities? Like once you start writing, you know, you sort of have to um, commit to something and, and some of the possibility gets drained out or, or were there other... I try. I'm trying. I'm trying to remember. I mean, I think. I think in some ways it was a particular problem that I had at my particular juncture. But I, I did a very, very traditional English degree, which, when uh, the most recent book I read was D. H. Lawrence's *The Rainbow*, 1915. I did a lot of medieval literature. 
I did a very, very good kind of canonical thing. So I went through all these all these figures like, you know, Dryden and Elizabeth Gaskell and so on. It was it was it, you know, alongside translating vast chunks of Beowulf and Saints Lives and things, and it was great. It was really good. But it kind of it kind of left you a bit um isolated in some ways and that you weren't really getting into lots of um meaty questions and 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 its obvious relevance to anything else was was not there it was it was in some ways i think if you just did that degree and you left you had a, probably had a much less satisfactory experience of as, as being a student as men had a much less satisfactory experience than many students would have nowadays where everything is tried to be connected people try to connect things to uh, current debates and so on. Um, so I think that was that was one thing where I've been used to doing that. And then, I, of course, I hit theory as a postgraduate, which can, you know, um, there's a story I sometimes tell undergraduates of my attempt to read uh, Derrida's writing on difference, where I'm buying it and thinking it's 300 pages. Oh, I can probably, um, probably take me about three days to read that, my holidays. End of day one, I got up at eight, you know, was still in my room at six o'clock had read three pages, was in tears, you know, thinking, this is, this has just blown my mind, where is this going? And, and I think in some ways, it was quite a schizoid sort of um, experience where, where I written one type of fairly trad literary essays as, as when I was a student. And then I'd moved into a very much more theory inflected historicist way of writing. And I think I wrote very badly in lots of ways. And I I, I half digested loads of theoretical books and started to write in a really clunky way. I think it was only later that I really, I really started to write um, a bit better and to to master way writing in ways that I was I was confident with and happy with. It was probably my early thirties that I started to think oh, I can I, I can kind of bend sentences to know to go where I want them to go rather than feeling I have to have endless sub clauses and clauses and going off in different directions. And I think I think that's probably not an uncommon experience, but it was quite a stark one for me because it was um, I was I was confronted with two very different ways of thinking about things, and in some ways I needed the apprenticeship that I got in the first one to be able to do what I did with the second one, but it was going to take a long time to think all that through, really. Uh, so it's partly it was partly that, and um, I. I developed a very clotted and convoluted style which I've I sort of I think I've I think I've got over the desire to be to to, to, to be the most sophisticated um, philosophically informed theoretical critic that have ever walked the planet because um, it became obvious to me that I wasn't that and I couldn't do that you know but that was probably a model I had was to early on which was good apprenticeship but bad in its res- immediate results I think yeah, and, and I'll, I'll say um, literature in class, this book, um, very accessible, a pleasure to read. So um, I can I can say that. Um, finally, can you tell us what you were working on? What's the next project? Well, the next, uh, I've got a, a short book on Thomas Nash coming out. I've, I'm working on a, an edition of the works of Thomas Nash, who is a Fabulous and fascinating writer. I've got a little a little book on him coming out, but then the big edition, you know, it's it's a prelude to the, the giant edition of the works which I'm working on with a number of people, including one at 
Massachusetts, Joseph Black. Uh, uh, but there's some. Um, I'm I'm doing that. I've got a couple of collections, but the next serious project will be will be finally completing the story of, of, of the class uh, class of literature really, and uh, and and doing a, a, a second book from sort of. Um, Literature and class from Peterloo to the present, really, or Peterloo to digital culture. I can't work out. I think Peterloo to the present has a ring, but I quite like the digital culture thing. So I'll work out what it's going to be called. But I want to. I want to try and do that in the equivalent book of the same sort of size with paradigmatic examples. In some ways, it's a, that's a that is a slightly harder book to write because it, it's an area that's more covered, I think, by by people writing about class. Because one of the things I was trying to argue against was. One of the things I found very interesting about the first book, just to go back very briefly to that, is lots of medieval historians have no problem talking about class. You then get into the Renaissance where everyone gets very, very anxious about class. I'm generalising, of course, but it's largely true. 18th century, people start talking about pre-class. In the 19th century, everyone thinks, oh, brilliant, class has arrived. We can write about class now. Um, it's a strange story, as though certain different, very different things happen, and it makes history very fragmented. If you tell, If you think about... A continuity through that it makes much more much more sense given the way people write about their lives their relationship to others their place in society so i want to i want to do the last part of that of that story which i'm really enjoying doing and i've got a couple of articles one on Gaulsworthy, another on the maverick uh, really eccentric upper class writer simon raven who who is much more interesting on class than you'd think he's pretty much never studied at university, largely forgotten. But when you used to have debates on class in the 1960s amongst the highbrow British literary journals, he was always the conservative figure who was asked to talk about class. And, he, and the thing I like about him, as comparing him to many of the other writers in the book, is he never quite says what you think he's going to say. You know, he is quite conservative and he is awful on education and very snobbish. There's all sorts of other things he says that are quite different. And I want to bring out the way in which so many writers um, are very conscious of their class status and are never really totally at, at ease with it and think it through in ways that go beyond what you'd expect. I suppose that's the story I want to tell. We'll look forward to the, that those projects, uh, Andrew. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure.